Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Brand and Beyond podcast. I'm your host, Chris, as joined as always by my co-host, Peace. And we have an absolutely fantastic episode for you guys today that we're very, very excited to share with you. We're joined by Chief People Officer at Margo, Francesca Molinari. Francesca, it's an absolute pleasure for you to be on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm great. Great. Thanks to be. Thanks for you both for inviting me here, Chris. With you, appreciate it. Of course, of course, of course. So, um, if you just give the audience a little brief intro of yourself, we know you have an illustrious background to say the least. Um, and just really introduce a little bit what you what you guys are doing at Margo and your role there. Absolutely. So I'm currently the chief people officer at Margo. Margo is a faster, greener, cheaper, better shipping solution for retailers. So we work with small parcels, delivering them around the nation in a way that is really disruptive in our industry. Um, my background is I've been in human resources or the people space for the entirety of my career. Big companies, small companies, I've taken a company public. I've been through all phases of mergers and acquisitions. Uh, you know, I think the hallmarks of my career in terms of industry have really been retail, commerce, e-commerce, digital marketing, and so software as a solution. So really the tech-enabled pieces of marketing and of retail is really where I've specialized over the years. So uh, we touch upon a lot, uh, you know, prior to the podcast, right? Your, your amazing experience, but just... Sticking to what you guys have going on at Margo, uh, would you guys consider yourself early stage at the beginning uh, growth stage? Uh, what, where, where would you place you know the the evolution, the development of where you guys are at, at the yeah, moment? Yeah, this is a really um, exciting place for me personally. It's we are very early stage, so kind of pre Series A. Um, but a very proven concept. So we have real customers. We are doing real work. We're sell sending millions of parcels um, around the country every day. And so, but as a company, we're you know we're operationally mature. But if you were to put us on a calendar, we're we're pretty young. All right. So I mean, being that you guys are a young company, how do you guys go about building as such an early stage culture? Uh, how, where would you say you guys are at? And just I guess the timeline of how you you know want your culture to be in the long yeah. term. Yeah, you know, I think if you come together as a leadership team and you think about what you want it to feel like to work here, that's the most important work you can do. And you don't you don't need a lot of fancy things or words on a wall or big consultant to come in with a big price tag. You know, you really come up with a few ideals about what it feels like to work here, how you'll make decisions, how you'll work with people. And, and the rest kind of flows from that. Now, we have a huge advantage at Margo in that several members of our leadership team have worked together previously. And so, you know, there's a long history at um, for our CEO, Mark and myself at eBay Enterprise and then at Magento um, and then, for, you know, for, at Adobe for a while. And so when you come together as a leadership team with years of experience, uh, you definitely have an accelerated start. But that doesn't preclude you if you're a new leadership team for just thinking about before you begin the form more formal work of what will the words sound like or what are we going to call our values? Just think about what you actually value. You know, we're going to be transparent with our employees. We want this to be a great place for people to work. And what does that mean? And, you know, identify the few things that um, will help guide you in your leadership actions and decisions. And you will feel a culture and the words will emerge later, you know, from the people as opposed to top down and, and empty. That's interesting. Uh, we, we personally haven't heard, you know, someone speak on culture saying that culture almost erupts from the people within opposed to the executives, almost like throwing it down on team members. Uh, where is that 
you know, yeah. thought process, you know, derived from, you know, is there yeah. certain situations where you learn like, hey, maybe instead of, you know, throwing culture down some people's throats, why don't we listen to them and see what they yeah. want and then build, build that scale there? Yeah, that's really sad to hear that that's a novel idea. I didn't, um, I didn't know I should look to trademark it. But um, <laughs> I, I, that's really disappointing. Um, you know, I think, you know, where I can speak to where I came to that very personally. Um, when we spun Magento out of eBay, we we took a series of products and we created a, a business, a, a P&L, a, a standalone business, actually. And we had to decide how was our culture as Magento going to be different than what we came out of. So as a divestiture, we came with people assets. We came with technology assets. Um, we weren't existing. We came with customers. We came with a business. But we wanted our own culture that was very distinct from eBay's. But when you're spinning out a company and doing a divestiture and standing alone, there's a lot of things you have to do. We had to figure out how are we going to pay people? <laughs> what are our benefits going to be? <laughs> um, we were putting our product in the cloud. We were moving from a small, um, a small uh, mid-sized, a small business, you know, market to a, a mid-sized to enterprise market. So we had a lot we had to do, and there really wasn't, you know, the top priority wasn't like what are the five things we want to put on a T-shirt. Um, but what we said was is as follows. We want to look back in the future and have people say that they did, they had the best experience of their career and they did great work with great people and had a lot of fun doing it. And, and that agreement between Mark and I and then, you know, the extended leadership team was enough to get us going. And so we communicated with the employees who spun out with us and, and basically said that, you know, there will be a time where we come to putting, people always say that, what is our culture going to be? What's our culture going to be? And I said, well, let's, let's kind of wait and see what we make of it. But here's the North Star, right? This is, this is what we want to do. We want to look back at some future date and say we had the best work experiences of our career. And so that's what we did. And a year later, we actually started a process for, um, you know, putting the words together and having the employees tell us what they thought the culture was. And then that began, I'm happy to talk more about it if that's, you know, interesting how we did that. But that's where I kind of practiced that idea and I've taken it with me ever since. So, yeah. oh, please, please. Yeah. So, no, please, please, please. I know I, he's, he's got a lot of questions. Right now. That's <laughs> yeah, why, that's so, why. Please, please. So what, what does that introductory conversation look like for individuals that aren't accustomed to that culture or working style? Cause you know, not, not, not a lot of companies out there, right. You know, think the way you do have been through your kind of experience. Yeah. Uh, is it, is it weird almost transitioning people, you know, from the old into the new essentially, right? When it comes down to, you know, hey, like, no, our executive team, our leadership team, they trust us to almost establish culture within ourselves and scale it accordingly. Uh, do you get turmoil in between those individuals? Yeah, I mean, who doesn't want to be a part of that? Right? Wouldn't you want to work for a company where they say the executives want to know from you what you think our culture is and what you want us to be? And we want to of hear course, from you. Of like, course. You know, and I yeah. think the right kind yeah. of people, uh, and I don't mean to say there's right people, wrong people. What I, what I mean by that is, right for what you're creating. Absolutely. You know, I don't think there's a question of someone's a bad fit or a bad hire. You know, it's not right for that job or that culture. There are people who want to come into an organization and they want everything mapped out for them. I want to know when I come in, I'm an analyst and in 18 months, then I'm going to be a senior analyst and I have to do these things and check these boxes. And, and you know, they want their career path from analyst to, you know, senior partner or what have you, you know, and that is more than cool awesome. Like go find those companies and go do that. Um, but don't then 
come into a company that isn't going to be structured that way, you won't be happy and the company won't be happy. And so in a high growth environment, whether it be a spin out like a Magento or a startup like a Margo, I think the best fitting employees will be those who are really open and agile to opportunity. And they can't put their finger on their timeline or the position or exactly what it's going to look like. You can't see the picture yet. You just, if you believe in the team, you believe in the product, you believe in the opportunity, you just know it could be good and you want to be a part of it. And I think that's the startup mentality. And I don't mean just of founders. I mean, of every person you onboard, we have an obligation to make sure, especially in a high growth company, that we're giving voice to what the experience is going to be like and helping people either self-select out of the process or self-select in if that's really a good match for what lights them up. And if it doesn't, like that's more than fine. Then go find a different kind of company that can really give you a structured roadmap for your growth because that appeals to a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Chris, before you you chime in, something I think that uh, is really cool is the fact that that also may also help you know, with your vetting process when considering candidates, I'd assume, right? You know, you, you know, you set the tone. You say, "Hey, this is how we work. This is how we operate. Uh, we're not a you know top-down, you know, culture-led organization." And if that's something you're not used to, hey, this may not be the right fit for you. So I think, I mean, that's not only idea. we think is unique based on a couple of pods we listen to and just you know reading articles and staying up to date, but you know, as you know, people you know, you know, Gen Z, millennials, you know, stepping into the workforce, that's something that we don't see as often. So that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. So if you were to interview, you know, with me at, for a position at, um, you know, before we define that culture, mm-hmm. right, that's a conversation we would have to say, look, I can't point to words on a wall and say or give you, you know, a, a T-shirt and say, here's our values or here's our culture statement. We're not there yet. But here's what I can tell you. You know, you're going to have five interviews with makeup phone number, right? You're going to have five interviews with us. Why don't you ask the people what they think the culture is? And I bet my bottom dollar that they're going to come back with the same descriptions because we have a common and collective understanding of how we run this business, of how we want people to feel. And so when you then do, at the appropriate point in your timeline, get to you know creating your beautifully crafted statements, um, they're so much more authentic because you've lived them first and you're mm. just giving voice to what is as opposed to you know sending down the, to- the stone tablets and saying, you know, these are the commandments of what our culture should be. And, you know, they often are, you know, aren't followed because they were developed by a bunch of people sitting in an ivory tower, often with the help of, you know, of an external consultant. Exactly. And I absolutely love that because it's almost like you guys do the work first and you just said, and you literally just said it, and then you live those values. So when it comes to actually writing those values, writing that culture, whatever it may be, it's already there. Ask everybody, everyone's have that same answer. I, I love I love that. So yeah. you know, as a branch of culture, you know, what does team empowerment look like to you and your organization? You know, are there any practices or methods you have now or you've done in the past, you know, to help make employees feel comfortable at and in any organization you led as well? Anything you find that really was effective? Yeah. We just got some recent feedback. My um my CFO was sharing with me that he got from two of our um two really wonderful and talented employees that one of the things they're appreciating about the culture we're creating is how um, it's okay to make a mistake and we talk about it and there's no blame or shame or finger pointing, but we just kind of say like, look, let's, let's talk about it. Let's know about it. Let's deal with it and let's do better next time. And so I think a big part of creating a culture 
of of trust and empowerment is number one, feeling like it's okay to say there's a problem or there's a problem coming or you know I've created a problem. You know whatever that is. I, I have a personal expression um, I've always used with my teams, which is go ugly early. Which is if like you've got something to tell me, just tell me and then go ugly early and just you know as if you let a problem fester and you keep trying to sweep it under the rug, it, that little monster is just going to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger, as opposed to kind of exposing it to the light and, and dealing with it and dealing it with it as a team. We all make mistakes. I make mistakes every single day. I'm sure I've already made one on your podcast, but um, it's what you do with it. It's how you learn and grow and, and you know accept that as a part of who you are and your journey and what you'll do differently next time. So a big part of empowerment to me is... Um, is taking risks, accepting mistakes, creating a culture where people feel that they can come forward with ideas, um, believing that important ideas and exciting ideas can come from anywhere. And I don't just mean lip service to that, but truly I believe that those closest to the customer or your product have the best ideas because they're touching it every day. You know, if you want to know how to improve HR processes, I'm actually probably the last person, you know, in a company you should ask about in terms of the actual administrative processes. Talk to someone on my team who would be much closer, you know, to that, who's touching the process itself every single day. So I really believe that empowerment starts with knowing that those, you know, closest to the code, as we like to say in tech, are going to have the best ideas on what could be done differently or better. You know, there's been so many times in my career, it it shouldn't continue to shock me, but I say, boy, if you just ask people, you know, it's amazing what what they'll tell you and the ideas that they will have for improvement. But a lot of people wait, you know, wait to be asked and and shame on us if we don't, as executives, you know, take time to listen and learn from our people. I, I think that's really dope. Uh, getting ugly early. But the first <laughs> thing that came to my mind was like that. That's a lot of tough conversations to to have. Right. So yeah. how how do you walk through those kind of conversations, whether it's, you know, uh, and you know maybe a new hire or an employee maybe that's not an executive trying to you know you know communicate with you some concerns whether it's related to culture or what's going on internally. Uh, so what does that conversation look like, and what what are conversations like you know top down when you have to have those conversations with teams that are you know beneath you saying hey you know, yeah there's certain changes that need to happen. Yeah, I think when I mean as long as I've been doing this. When you work as a member of my team, it's probably one of the first conversations we'll have. And or even if I'm interviewing you new, so I'm talking about someone now directly on my team. You know, anyone who, who worked with me would say that they've heard this many, many, many times. My daughter would say she's heard this many times because I think um, it's true of my parenting style, which trust, my trust is the most precious gift I give you. And and you have it from hello. And other people have different views, and that's a lot of people are like, you need to earn my trust. I'd rather just start with it. And start with assuming noble intent. And then that's yours to keep or lose. Now, if you lose it, you're going to have a long and difficult road with me to break it because I've been clear with you from the beginning that this is the most precious gift I'm giving you and it's yours to lose. And my expectation is if you're in relationship with me, right, as a member of my team, that you'll be both truthful and forthcoming. And those are not the same. Truthful means if I ask you a question, you're going to give me an honest answer and not lie. Forthcoming means there's something you know I need to know, but you are making a decision to tell or not tell. And I need both. And so the truthfulness and the forthcoming is how, you know, you'll you'll keep that trust, you know, with me. But 
in exchange for that, I will listen well. I will, you know, um, not throw you under the bus. You know, if you've done something that could be done differently, we'll have that conversation. It may be awkward and uncomfortable, but it's a learning moment. I mean, you you have to make it okay for the person to know that they will be safe in sharing what's gone wrong and that together you will pick a path forward. And so I think by setting expectations from the very beginning of the relationship and by letting them know that it's more than okay to let me know when there's an error, I actually expect it. And and then being truthful in when errors come up um, and mistakes happen, you know, having the appropriate reaction and, and delivering on what I said I would do, which is, to to listen, to not blame or shame, and to try to figure out a path forward. And sometimes when there's a mistake, especially in my line of work, the lesson comes later. You know, it's like, all right, let's go into triage mode. Let's figure this out, you know, and then later on we can unpack and dissect what could we have done differently? Was there a warning sign here? Where did this thing unhinge? You know, you can, you can, it's not always real-time coaching in a moment of triage is not always so helpful. Sometimes you've got to go into problem solving first and then take a step back and have a reflection, you know, afterwards. A so, post-action review, if you will. Yeah. So something oh really just to migrate that that topic into how how that mindset uh almost like hits friction when you merge, right? Being that you guys merged with uh, Adobe with Magento right, with a whole new culture and a whole new, you know, methods and strategy in terms of, you know, sustaining, you know, team empowerment, things like that. Uh, as the chief, you know, uh, HR officer, right, of Magento, you know, yeah. I think you guys sold for a billion two to Adobe. Yeah, yeah. A billion two. congratulations on that. Yeah, uh, what, what was that experience like just wholesomely, right? <laughs> Whether it's your personal life, professional life. And uh, what was that uh, convergence like, you know, two cultures coming together, and just having to figure it out. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. You know, it I learned a lot about mergers and acquisitions having sat in that seat. You know, I I had done a lot of due diligence work previously. I had been the acquiring company many 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 times. I had never um, been in the seat of being acquired by a much larger company and one with a a very well-known, very solid, very established and respected culture, um, much larger organization. So, you know, I learned, I learned an awful lot and I, I gathered a lot of appreciation. I will do M&A differently because of that experience. And some of those things are very positive things from my experience and others. And I've been, you know, extremely vocal about what I thought could have been done better or or differently. So I'll give a small example. You know, when you're um, an executive and, and due diligence is being done in your company, it can feel really invasive. I mean, I, I always say it's a little bit like someone's in your, you know, the drawer where you keep your privates, you know, it's, it's <laughs> literally, it's like everyone, they're digging in your data. I mean, you've got teams and teams of people, right? Not just the potential acquirers, but, you know, their lawyers, their bankers, their investors, like everything is being gone. And, and everyone, especially the external consultants, are very much, you know, geared around trying to find, you know, the thing, the the, the dirt, the whatever, you know, they want to find something in anything in, in your private drawers, right? So, um, it's very invasive, you know. Let me just call that out, and you feel a little bit like you're being, you know, turned turned inside out, and and it's it's a good process, and it's an important process, and anyone buying something of value, should, you know, same when you walk through a house that you're looking to buy, right? You're gonna you're gonna open every drawer, you're gonna turn on the. It's not a not damning the process. 
I'm just maybe giving voice to in a way that others typically won't. Like what it feels like. It doesn't feel so great. It's very necessary. I have full respect for it. It is, it kind of, you know, makes you feel very raw. So we're on the other side of of all of that. And, you know, Adobe has decide, decided to buy us and two, two um, women as members of the HR team come to me. And so we're still in this process of like the decision's been made. We're going to start to begin the integration planning and I had known I would sign on for a role with Adobe and was joining the company. I didn't know at the time that these women would later come and join my team. I might have been a little nicer to them if um, if I had known that. But they came to me and said, after this, you know, kind of feeling like I was exposed process and said, you know, we're here to help you with integration planning and we're going to do a cultural audit. Now, the last thing you want is to feel audited. And then they go on to explain that this is a really helpful process to understand. And what the it was, was actually a really useful tool and process. But taken through the eyes of the person you are explaining that to, like no one wants to go through an audit of any kind, period, the end. And being told that your culture is going to be audited, I mean, it just, it didn't feel, and I was very clear in telling them they needed to find a new name for this process and needed to put the acquisition target in the center of the room and think about, and that I would absolutely in no way have my employees invited to a cultural audit. If you wanted to have roundtables to talk about in a two-way process, what the Adobe culture is like and what the Magento culture is like, I'm all for that and I'll be the biggest fan, but we're not going to be assessed or audited, you know, in any more than we have and certainly not frontline, you know, employees. And so um, there's an example of, you know, I always call it putting, you know, putting the customer in the center of the room. So in that case, the acquiring culture is, you know, is the new company. And so thinking about how they are feeling even down to choosing the words of your tools and processes, I think is is really important. And the process itself was really great. The name was really terrible and had to go. <laughs> so, did you did you hear any word from like your your employees? I, I guess maybe not the executive level and leadership that had any like cultural concerns. Like, hey, like this isn't what we signed up for. Was there any like turnover when people experienced this uh, went through this acquisition process? Yeah, I mean, that's really normal. So I don't know that it was any more than, you know, expected. I think people sometimes join smaller companies um, for a reason. Oftentimes, uh, that's a dream that they have. Oftentimes, they've worked in a larger company and are now looking for something different. Um so I don't know that it was anything, you know, more than expected. As a matter of fact, I'd say it was probably less than expected. You know, Adobe's been a really, really good home for the majority of the employees. Many of them are still there and have really, you know, thriving, growing careers. But I think you can expect there to be, and there was, of course, you know, people who left because they felt like they were, I called it, so close to the center of the sun. You know, they might yeah. have been very close to the Magento executive <clears throat> leadership team and our cadences, and we had a certain way of running things. And then you're now in a much larger organization, and you've moved way, 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 way down, you know, from the center of the, the sun. Um, you know, also another thing that um, anyone who's been through mergers and acquisitions will tell you is one of the most wretched part of the processes from an employee experience is a process called leveling, um, which is where you take the employees of the incoming organization and figure out how their titles and levels match up to the existing. And generally what happens, I've, I've 
been at this game a long time, is in a smaller company, you can be very generous with levels. And so people may have, you know, nice titles like senior director or director or VP or assistant VP or, you know, they may be a seat of something, a chief, whatever, you know, and then you put them into a company, a hundred, you know, a hundred, 200, 300,000 people or more, um, you know, and you're not the VP of, or you're certainly not the chief technology officer anymore, right? And so, and you don't report to the fill in the blank anymore. And so the process of being leveled, you know, is a, it can feel really poorly uh, to employees and people take their titles and their levels really seriously. And so for some people that can honestly, especially in a good economy, you know, it can come down to whether they stay or not, is if they feel like their career is going to move forward or, or move back. And there were certainly some people who, it, it is always one of the most challenging processes. You know, my personal advice to people who go through that is um, not to put too much stock in what your level is. I mean, I've, you know, I've been, uh, you know, a you know, a v, an EVP, a VP, an SVP, like, I'm not sure what it really means or, you know, it's, it's, you know, and I know easy to say when you've had, you know, when you have the chief in front of your title and easy to say when you've had, you know, big titles, especially in big companies, I, I recognize that's a something people strive for and I strived for and, and achieved. But ultimately, when you are acquired by another company, you know, I'd say, see what the work is and the impact and, and, you know, obviously what your compensation is and your benefits and how you're treated and all that. I, I wouldn't stay or leave a company based on title. And I, I wouldn't advise that anyone does that, you know, either. I don't, I think there are much more important things. If the other pieces are there, you know, in a much bigger company, you cannot expect to be the senior vice president of whatever. If you've come out of a 500 person company or now part of a, you know, 20,000 person company. Absolutely. I mean, you didn't stay there for much long. And uh, what what made you end up leaving and you know joining you know your CEO again right and uh, yeah and Margo. yeah yeah I stayed for I stayed for eighteen months post acquisition so I really was there um, to see my company you know I felt like it was Magento we didn't create Magento but we reconstituted Magento um, and, and created this standalone entity that you know ultimately was sold to Adobe and I, I wasn't ready to walk away from the the employees and I knew I had been so close to all phases of the acquisition process that I could be really helpful to their integration and and be an an advocate on all sides right that isn't I don't mean that by choosing a side like I was advocating not that at all but helping employees understand why maybe their title did have to change and why maybe that wasn't so unfair but on the other side maybe saying but look we have to be gentle about this because this really matters and it's going to pinch right so it's I could very easily see both sides of, you know, of these situations. So helping to find ways to facilitate um, the understanding was really what was very, very important to me. And I, I wasn't ready to leave my CEO and I wasn't ready to leave um, my team. And, and Adobe is a, is a wonderful company and it was a great opportunity to take on, you know, a bigger role. Um, so. For sure. Um so, you know, speaking about transitioning into working at that sort of a startup culture, right, at Magento and then being acquired by Adobe, thousands of employees all across the world. Right now at Margo, you have around 40 to 50 people, yeah. about, right? Yeah. Um, so experience being a leader at companies, though, like Adobe, 
eBay wheels up with thousands of employees, like we just said. Are there any differences between how you approach leading small organizational teams as opposed to large, publicly traded, ginormous organizations? Yeah. Surprisingly, no. I mean, there are, look, there are procedural things, right? When you run mm. a public company in my line of work, there's you know things you need to do in, in terms of procedure, right? The board meetings are run a certain way. The compensation committee is run a certain way. Your employee equity is admitted. Or, you know, there's, there's just a lot that is, is in keeping with your public company um, status, your, your size, et cetera. Obviously, being a global company is really different than being a, a national company as Margot is today. So, you know, much is different. For sure. What I would say also is as long as I've been doing this and my career has varied a lot of different industries and um, I worked at GE for a long period of time. I was the head of HR for Central Park. Ultimately, being a chief people officer comes down to the behavior of people more than anything else and the study of human behavior. And one thing I would say at this point in my career is across wide industries, geographies, um, decades, people's behavior is much the same. The same things cause people to feel engaged and disengaged. The same hallmarks of leadership, um, you know, are, are there's certainly things that become more fashionable or chic or, you know, new and, and new situations have come into. I mean, we could have never predicted pre-COVID, the agility that was necessary as managers to lead people, especially companies that weren't. So I'm not saying nothing ever changes, but if you were to boil down the essence of human behavior, you know, if you go back to the most ancient texts we have as, as people, <laughs> like human behavior really hasn't, it really hasn't changed all that much, right? Jealousy is jealousy. Worry is worry. Scarcity of resources is scarcity of resources. You know, our values driving our behavior, it, um, leadership, you know, uh, you know, whether it be Moses and, you know, <laughs> leading the people or what you can, like leadership really hasn't changed all that much and people haven't changed all that much. And so, um, I think just remembering uh, the commonality of our humanity means I can walk into any company, any industry at any point, and I think still add a lot of value because of my understanding of human behavior, which is very, very you know agnostic of. And and there are you show up differently. Um, there are different styles that are more or less appropriate in different environments, right? So again, I'm not I'm really oversimplifying things, but at, at its very core and essence, I believe the same things cause employee problems and the same things will either exacerbate or, you know, cut off a problem before it even starts. So you, you mentioned COVID uh, earlier. How has, you know, have, well, have you seen any, you know, behavioral, you know, changes or shifts as your company i mean you guys began remote i believe yeah yeah we're okay. we've always been fully remote so um marco is really unique in that we were founded as fully remote and um, remain that way and have will remain that way and so when we think about you know getting back to the beginning of the conversation you know what does our culture look like and and you know we've not written out our values quite yet, but we've declared that we want to hire the best talent. That's the right fit for us, agnostic of where that person lives within the United States. And so having a fully remote culture and being clear with people that there's not a date by which you're coming back to the office, we don't even have an office, um, is an important part of, of working with us. And so 
because it's not on a timeline, because it's not going to change, and because it never did change, because it always was remote, I think really gives us a leg up in terms of um, building a culture without being in person. So we're you know, we're not looking back to what was we never had as a company. What was no certainly you know as individuals might miss at times. Of course, you know being with people is great. I love being with people, um, and I do I do miss that sometimes. And you know wish you know I know there'll be a time when we can do that you know even more often than we do today. Um, but that doesn't. I don't feel like I don't have relate. I know I have relationships with people that I see on Zoom. And have some I've never met in person. Some I have, some I haven't. But I have really deep relationships with people, and I've had to do it in a in a one dimensional kind of way. But the dimensions run deep, even though the screen is flat. Yeah, wow, that's far. Uh, what what is what are your two cents uh, in terms of being that you know you've worked at you know all these you know big companies you know some clearly were in person. Uh, yeah. What what is your two cents in terms of what is better for creating sustained culture, remote work, worse in person? Yeah. So I started working remotely in 2001. So a long time ago before we had um, a lot of the tools and technologies. I was at, I worked for GE. I had a really forward thinking manager. I had a nearly two hour commute each way. And it was part of my concern in joining. And she was one of the first um, teleworkers is what we called them. And she had moved to California and the company didn't want to lose her and said that she could move to California and, you know, come back as necessary. And, and so she was really a pioneer in our, our business unit at that time. And so she said to me, look, take a quarter, learn the business. But after a quarter, if, you know, I'm pleased with you and how you've developed and your relationships and your work, you can work two days a week from your home which was not easy. I had a very global job. Um, I, you know, we didn't have any of the technology, but I really did learn in this three, two combination. And over the years, I, sometimes I was fully in office. Sometimes I was partially remote. Sometimes I traveled so much. I don't even know what the office would have been because I was just always in other locations, but so I've been doing this a long time. And so I think personally it's, it's been easy for me to adapt. Some of the ways I've personally adapted is one, when you, you know, take time during your meetings to just check in with people the same way you would if you bumped into them, you know, in the in the kitchen, right, area, like you're making a coffee, like, hey, how are you? How's your weekend? So when I have my my biweekly, um, you know, meetings with, um, you know, with people, I'm always like, how was your week? You know, so mirroring what you would do in person, but just, you know, over technology, I think is is super important and being genuine and intentional about asking about people, learning about. So that's that's a big piece of it. Um, you know, as a company, we do a couple of things that I think are, are really, really fun. Um, we do virtual events quarterly. So we work with an external provider and, and set up an event once a quarter. We had a really fun one that was almost like a, um, like a game. We broke out into different rooms and played like a, a virtual games against one another. We've done trivia. We have regular um, virtual happy hours that are really not dreadful. Like people show up. Uh, we do them once a month. And we have we found that by having facilitated games, it, whether it be trivia questions or mm -hmm. um, you know, question starters, they're they're really fun. They're very well attended. Um, so we're, you know, we're learning how to adapt to 
the things that you have experienced working in an office, you know, how to adapt it in a virtual way. And I think the most important thing you can do to have success in a virtual environment is to make sure you have people for whom that's attractive. You know, I love working remotely. I do. I will just declare it. It really works for me. It works for my lifestyle. I don't think if if I have this luxury, I will return to a five day a week in an office job ever if I can help it. You know, that's just not what I want to do anymore. I have no shoes on right now. And if I never put my foot in another Jimmy Choo again during the work week, that is really cool with me. Um, so, you know, I, I, and that's not the only reason, of course, but, you know, it, there is something to be said for the blended, the blended life that I have. And, and I enjoy that. Um, and I, I can be more productive, frankly, you know, um, so you have to find people, I think, who are set up for it, who want it. And it's getting easier to find. I, you know, I, I think if companies don't adapt, they're they're going to have a hard time with, you know, with talent. I, I am not alone in this. I may be braver than most in, in saying it and sharing that I'm barefoot. But, you know, the reality is I bet you guys are too. So this is true. This is absolutely <laughs> true. Um, yeah, I absolutely love that, though. You know, hearing just being on social media, hearing people talk about working remotely and some of them not feeling that sort of connection to their culture, to their company, but you taking the time out, how is your weekend? How's everything going? Treating them like people. It's almost like a lost art, unfortunately, in yeah. our society and in, in, in some case scenarios. But to hear you guys doing that is so important. And again, could we expect anything less from the great Francesca Molinari? I don't think we could. Too sweet. Yeah, we oh, do another thing that's really good. It's called um, Shout Out to Donut. We have an app on Slack called Donut, and it matches. It's completely voluntary. You sign up for it, and it matches you every couple weeks with another employee at random. And I take my donuts really seriously. I do all my donuts. <laughs> you know, started doing his donuts, like, and it's now part of our culture is that I did a donut. I learned this in a donut. Yeah. Um, so big shout out to Donut. Not that they're doing something we couldn't have done ourselves, but um, you know, just having it, 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 it's tech enabled. So it's easy. So every two, it happened yesterday, right? I like get a little thing. You, you and so-and-so have been matched up. So I get that on my calendar and I take a half an hour with an employee and, and vice versa. They take a half an hour with me. And sometimes it's super social and we just get to know each other, you know, in a very, um, you know, personal way, you know, other times it's, you know, it's an opportunity for them to talk about work and their career for me to ask questions. So it can go in any direction, but, you know, it has enabled me to learn so much about people and, and for all of our executives to do their donuts and really enjoy it. And so again, that accessibility of leadership and that opportunity to connect, I think can really make a virtual company feel very close. Couldn't agree more. I love. Hey, maybe one day we gotta look into the donuts. I love that. Yeah, it's a Slack oh, yeah. app. It's great. It's really great. So, getting into our last question, kind of wrapping everything up. Question we love to ask everybody here on the pod: What is one question that you might have for could be a founder, operator, executive, any even an athlete, anybody you could think of that would help you? on your journey and your career as you continue to grow? Could be anybody. Bonus points if you have a specific question for a specific person. Man, you didn't prep me for this one. Got to catch you off guard here. Let's see. Oh, I don't know. Um... (laughs) You don't need the specific person, though. That's just bonus points if you have like a burning question for a certain someone. No, what's what's on my heart lately 
is there certain CEOs of certain very big and well-known companies? My question is like, what the heck are you thinking with how you're laying people off? And, and, you know, and, and I, I don't know that that would help me on my journey, but my goodness, yeah. that help you on yours. You know, I I am disappointed, and you know, yeah. in companies that have professed for years and years to say people matter and our talent matters and and to to dare to talk about equity yeah you're treating people equitably equitably terrible you know and i I, i'm sorry being a large company does not preclude you from taking difficult conversations one-on-one the bigger you are the more resources you have do not tell me those people don't have managers that might not have an exit conversation with them you know if not face to face then on zoom like this is, zoom is a reality or whatever you know teams or whatever you use don't tell me there's not an hr person or a recruiter who could not thoughtfully help someone especially someone who's just had a baby or it may be here on a form of immigration status like these are one oh i have done many 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 layoffs in my life many mm-hmm. There is just a way to treat people with dignity and respect. And I don't know how these companies think that they can in the future because the pendulum always swings back. They will be hiring again. And the number one question I would encourage you and your leaders to ask of any company they interview with in the past is, have you done layoffs and how have you communicated them? And then talk a little further. What did you do with people on disability? What did you, were they in person? (laughs) I really think it's incredibly telling. And so I know that isn't exactly the question that you asked, but it is something very much on my heart, this profound disappointment about, and not that people are losing their jobs, it's tough economic times, that is a business reality. So I'm not talking about the exit themselves. It's, um, I'm going to assume for the moment, they're good business decisions. And, and sometimes we have to you know, prune, prune, prune a tree for its own health. And I get that. And generally people land and land better and, and hopefully mm-hmm. they They've gotten good, uh, you know, severance packages to help guide them in that. But, you know, to to, ha- to wake up and have your system shut down after years and years with the company is just, it's unconscionable. Yeah, 100%. I absolutely love that answer, though. It, yeah, the, there's definitely a right way to do something like that, and especially when you're dealing with people's livelihood and, you know, how they feed their families, their children, everything like that. It's it's definitely a different level of uh, seriousness in general. Um, well, going off that very, very powerful statement right there, Francesca, where can people find you? Where, pe- where can people learn more about Margot and whatever else you'd like to plug? Yeah, absolutely. So Margot has a, has a secret E in it. So it rhymes with cargo, but it's M-A-E-R-G-O. We like to say that the E is for the employees. Love Margo. that. <laughs> but it's Margot. Um, so would love you to learn more about, about Margot. We're very disruptive in our space. And I think it's really a compelling and exciting company. And one, especially if you're a retailer, we'd love you to learn more about. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn, Francesca Molinari, uh, and would be you know happy to, happy to connect. Francesca, this has been an absolute pleasure. You're absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time. And for everyone listening, for the Brand and Beyond podcast, that will be all. Until next time.